So Eileen and I tonight are going to begin a talk that we'll, 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 we'll reflect on these ideas this evening. And actually the talk will bleed into tomorrow in which we will all have a conversation around that. So this is going to kind of be an extended idea that questions that we're going to explore. Um, and so I guess the talk would be called A, a Culture of Awakening. And uh, what does that mean? So um, the way that I think about Dharma currently and have for quite some time now, I think, is it a practice? Is it a religion? Is it, what is it? To me, I think in a perfect sense, it's, it's a culture. Uh, and it's a culture of people who want to be awake. Uh, it's a culture, hopefully, that is not based on hierarchy or dogmas or a lot of these different types of trappings. And so the first kind of thing I reflect on is sort of what is, what is my understanding, what is maybe a understanding of the past that we've been really kind of looking at for 15 months, and that really is this eightfold path. And so... Uh, in a dogmatic sense, I'll just kind of ask a question, probably you know the answer to it. In traditional sense, the Eightfold Path is the path that leads to what? Awakening. Awakening, but what does it usually say? Nirvana. The path that leads to the end of suffering. Oh. I'm so glad you guys don't know that anymore. <laughs> Yay, teacher! <laughs> Good. But when we look at, it's very interesting, if you look at the text, if you look at the way that the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path. He says the Eightfold Path is a path that leads to a city. And there's a sutta called the Ancient City. And he talks about how I follow this Eightfold Path and I discovered this ancient city with parks and ramparts, a delightful place where people were living in harmony. And, and he goes to the king or the minister and says, we should renovate this city, sire. We should bring this into being. Uh, and so he talks about the Eightfold Path as a, as a culture. And I think it's actually very safe to say that what the Buddha had, had imagined for humanity has yet to happen. Uh, and, and if you look at the history, we know that the Dharma, the Buddhist practice, really died out in, in northern India where it started. And of course, the arising of Hinduism and lots of other Indian religions came much later. And I, weirdly enough, the Dharma spread to other places. But if, even if you were to go to, to Rajgir or to Jedith Grove or these places in the canon today, there'd be no, you'd have no idea at all. There's no remnants of that. It kind of vanished. Right? And so part of the, the work that I've been trying to do and the way that we're thinking about this is looking at there, it's like maybe there, there originally were these two Dharma paths. There was the monastic path, which has actually gratefully and thankfully been well-preserved and has expanded throughout Southeast Asia and different parts of, and there's different types of lineages and all that stuff has been good, but they're really has been no Dharma path for people who aren't in the monastery. That, that, that is a long forgotten thing. But originally there was that. So the path really, I think, is about how do we uh, bring all of these ideas and things that we've talked about into, into our lives, which is to me an, an engagement with the world. Right? And so the other question I would say, well, how has my, how has my idea of the path changed? over the years, and it's changed a lot. And I think it should, I think it's healthy to change. I remember when I was talking to Stephen Boucher at one point early on, I was like, yeah, I was like, I listened to Dharma talks I gave three years ago and I like, don't agree with any of it anymore. 
I was like, I, 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 I just really flip-floppy. I change my mind all the time about this stuff. And he's like, that's really good. You should, you change is a thing, right, in this practice. So like, that it's, it's healthy for us to change and to be open to different ideas and to kind of, so I think even the path in and of itself actually changes over time. Right? And probably if you sit here now, you probably can think at one point, maybe you thought about it in one way and now you're thinking about it in a different way and a year or two from now, you'll probably think about it in another way and that's probably good. Because I think the Dharma, uh, as much as it's a culture, it's also an evolution. And it's, it's evolved for thousands of years and it's continuing to evolve right into this room now. And, uh, I'm actually very, I think now is a really cool, exciting time to be in the Dharma because there's so much uh, conversation, there's so much stuff going on. Uh, it can be overwhelming and confusing, but it can also be very exciting. And so I, you know, what, what is supportive in developing the path? What, what, what helps us? What supports us? Um, I think the ultimate support is the practice itself. So really committing to sitting, uh, trying to get on retreats. Um, teachers, and I say teachers as in the plural, I don't think it's actually a great idea to just have a teacher in which you kind of put your authority on that teacher. I've done that before and it's, I've had varying degrees of success. I think that that's the general approach with the guru stuff and kind of the way we have our teacher. But I think it's much more healthier to have teachers as in the plural sense. And maybe you spend some time with somebody for a period of time, but it's always good to be getting different, different ideas and different reflections from different people. And ultimately, you're really the teacher. Right? So again, this way in which we can a lot of times send, surrender our autonomy or authority to somebody who, the one who knows. Um, and that's not always so good. And so it's good to, to be open and to learn from different people. And nowadays, it's great because of podcasts and the internet. It's like, you can, you can listen to so many different people. And so I, I feel really, I, I don't feel that lucky in life, but I feel really lucky. I really feel like I've always had really great teachers and really great experiences with people over the years. And some of the teachers I still have and still use. And um, that's just one thing. I just feel like that's been my luck in, in the Dharma. And the other question is, you know, and this is a big question. We'll talk more about this tomorrow because I'm really curious to see what you have to say about this is, what is the role of our Dharma practice as it relates to the world in which we live in? You know, what is the role of, uh, in, in society, in culture, in politics, and all of the, the worldly stuff that we have going on? How does our practice integrate into that? And I think that's very different for everybody. And I think it should be different for everybody. You know? My, my work mostly has been, you know, trying to raise wise, intelligent, kind children, which is a whole practice in and of itself. But mostly a lot of my engagement has been, in the last many years, really around the environment. I've been involved in the environment. I worked for Greenpeace in my early 20s, and I've really always been um, for trying to do things environmentally, and it's hard. Uh, but trying to have that as part of my practice and part of my teaching. And also, too, in, in, in recent years, really trying to look at privilege and whiteness, you know, and really taking that on, and, and also beginning by being like, I actually don't even know what they're talking about. Like, I, that's part of the problem, right? Is I, what do you mean? What is this whiteness you speak of? It's like, you know, this, 
you know, when I woke up to it, it was just like, and one of the people really helped me with Lama Rod Owens, because him and I spent a lot of time together talking about that, and it was really great to have that conversation, being comfortable enough to be like, yeah, I'm just super ignorant here. Like, I don't, you know, I've always been anti-establishment, you know, and I, I had to wake up to the fact that just because I don't like the white dominant paradigm, I still benefit from being a white male. Like, so I cannot like it and I can be against it and I can push back against it, but I still walk around in this vehicle where mostly I can go anywhere and do anything. Right? And so I, I, those are the two things that I really have been kind of dedicated to and interested in in my practice. And that's a lot. There's a lot more we can do. But I think a lot of it is trying to, for ourselves, uncover what is it that's important to us and not feeling obligated or forced uh, because there is no shortage of important issues out there. Uh, and it's probably unlikely that you're going to be able to dedicate yourself to all of them. Right? And so um, that is a whole other way to think about practice. That um, Sometimes they call it engaged Buddhist practice. Um, and trying to reflect on the ways in which um, you, how much of that do you want to take on. You know? And now is a great time for the... Like I said, the world, if the world doesn't need one thing, it's more suffering people. So a lot of the work that I try to do is to just try to be a kind and generous person, which will keep you busy most of the time. And trying to be open and to not contribute to the divisiveness. Right? And, and, and being in, in awkward situations around society and politics where people are expressing views and opinions that I, to some degree, disdain. And trying to be in that experience and go, okay, like this is... You know, it's hard work to be open to those things. So before I go through all of these, I'm going to put the mic back over here, and I'm just going to ask Eileen to reflect on some of these, and I'll just start at the top. And so, you know, what, what is your understanding of how has what is your understanding of the path of the practice? Has, how's that been? So for me. Um, I've arrived at a place where, and I don't mean to, uh, I'm just going to say this, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Adam, but you said something really amazing. Like yesterday, you said something like, well, I don't know if um, Dharma is giving me more wisdom or is it just, you know, just growing up, just my age, you know, just, and I just loved that question, and I just loved that, that reflection, rather, and I really thought about it, and I was like, I thought the same thing. And I've decided, for myself, I've decided it's both. It's, um, it's kind of like the Dharma has been very healing for me and has allowed me to move through a lot, not everything, I'm still working on it, but a lot of my traumas and hurts and, and old patterns of thinking that don't serve me. And that moving through that has allowed me to like get kind of get out of my own way. And it's like the Dharma has kind of uh, helped me like prune. <laughs> I'm a guardian, you know, the, the Dharma has helped me kind of clear out old growth. And naturally, just with time and experience, um, then maturity can happen um, on its own rather than being stagnant and stuck. So that's kind of how I see it right now. And how has the practice or how has that changed over time since you started practicing? 
till right now. Well, in the beginning, you know, like almost 20 years ago, it was very, in my mind, pretty simple. I was feeling really bad. I was going through a lot of anxiety and depression. I was in my mid-20s, and um, I had been hearing or reading things that meditation was gonna, would be good for good for people who had depression and anxiety. So I was just like, I'll just do it. I just got to try something. I didn't even have a lot of thought in, about it. Just I want to try something to help feel better. And how did that change over time? And now, now it's probably a lot more, a more, it's a lot more than that now. Oh yes, a lot more than that. What are some of the things that have been supportive in your practice, in your path? What are the things that have kind of held you up and allowed you to keep going? I think um, in practice, what has really been such a gift is a community, a sangha. I'm meeting uh, wise friends along the path. And uh, whether it was you know, at Against the Stream or in LA or different programs I've done like through Spirit Rock, you know, this program has been such a wonderful gift of meeting all of you. Um, just being around people that want to be awake has been such a, an inspiration and support. I also, I really connect with uh, the Dharma as this, um, it's this kind of global tradition that has lasted for centuries. And it has been passed down um, through different cultures, different countries, millennia, and it's like being a part of a worldwide community. So that has really been a huge support, thinking of it that way when things haven't always panned out in like my, my corner of the world, you know, that, that was a huge support when Against a Stream fell apart because it was like the Dharma doesn't depend on any one person or any one place or thing or any one group of people. This is something that is a worldwide um, um, culture, a worldwide support system. So and people that came before me and there'll be people after me. And as you practice now, what do you feel like your role of your Dharma practice is as it relates to society, culture, the world? How do you, how do you negotiate that space? I'm, I'm not entirely sure sometimes. I've gotten to the point in a, some, a few times over the past like five, six years where there just seems to be so much darkness in the world and so much pain and suffering and so many different levels and so many different parts of the globe and people that I know or people that I don't know, just everywhere. And I, I really think it's important to have a place where people can have refuge. And sometimes I think of the groups that I lead as like candles in the darkness, that we are the light and that we gather together. And um, sometimes I think that's, that's really good enough at days because life can be very, very hard. Um, as far as like globally, I'm really interested in issues having to do with social justice. And I feel like my work is very much like act locally, think globally. Like um, I hope that wherever I am in, in Dharma spaces, whether I'm teaching or a student or whatever, or both, or, you know, 
that, um, that I can be around spaces where people can maybe think differently about people of color, maybe think differently about people like myself, Latina, Mexican-American, or that I, that I talk about issues having to do with people of color or feminism or women. And I, you know, I really think that's, and to look at those things from a Dharma lens, I really want to affect change in those ways. And I can't do everything, you know, it's not like mm-hmm. uh, just, these are huge macro problems on the societal level, but I feel like, well, this is the things that I can do, maybe a, a little bit at a time. So this, the second kind of group of questions that we'll talk about and, and unpack together tomorrow is just what is, what is the experience of, uh, of Dharma as a culture so far? What has been that kind of experience? And um, I mostly feel grateful for that experience because I've been really kind of around the culture of Dharma or people who have practiced Dharma from, a, from the time I was 17. So I really... Uh, and when I was introduced to these first teachers and, and to my friend Hahnemann Goldman and his dad and all the IMS teachers and being around them, I, like Eileen was just saying, I was like, I was like there's this thing that people are doing in the world that's amazing. I had no idea. And of course, having done copious amounts of psychedelic drugs, the idea that the whole thing was about the mind uh, as, as an experience that can be cultivated, that can be explored. Uh, I like that. I was like, this is like really interesting. So I uh, was very lucky to be brought into that. Uh, but it was weird. I was, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, sitting 10-day retreats at IMS, and the, the next youngest person was 55. You know, in fact, I think I've said this before, but some, some, once in a while I'd be walking outside the office and somebody would come out from the office and ask me if I was looking for one of my parents. I'd be like, oh, no, I'm on retreat. I'm not supposed to be talking, I don't think. And then they'd freak out. I'm so sorry. But I always had the feeling, because there was always, for probably nobody's fault, there was always a kind of educated, white kind of thing around it. And I, I don't consider myself educated. I barely graduated high school. But I, I didn't feel like I, I was kind of more of a lower middle income blue collar, my dad was an alcoholic, Vietnam vet, like I just didn't feel like I ever really fit in. Even though I was treated with kindness and I, it was more on me than I think the culture, but I always just felt like, you know, I always felt like the odd man out. I'm sure you all know what I mean by that. It's just like, I don't, I don't really, I like this, but I don't really belong here. I don't really have anything in common with any of these folks. Right? So I would kind of fall in and out and it wasn't really till you know, till, really till Dharma Punks came out. And I remember I sat the three-month retreat at IMS, um, and I had a conversation with a teacher named Springwash, I'm at the end of it, and she was like, I, he had sat the three-month retreat, and she said, you have to meet this guy, Noah Levine. You totally remind me of him. He just wrote a book called Dharma Punks. He's a teacher. And I was kind of like, whatever. You know, I just kind of was like trying to get off the, trying to get in my car and get the hell out of there. But then I went to Amherst, Massachusetts to get a cup of coffee and walk around, and I walked by a, big, a bookstore, and in the bookstore was Dharma Punks, the cover of the book with the hands and the whole deal. And I was like, well, this shit never happens to me. <laughs> you know, and I, I was just like, so, I, so the fact that there was, 
Dharma punks really, I think, was really what opened me up to like, oh, this is like, there's younger, there's other people my age, my background who are, who are doing this. And so Eileen and I, we would probably, nobody would probably, if it wasn't for against the stream and Dharma punks, we wouldn't, nobody would really be here right now. So, I mean, that's real. And so uh, that really, you know, Noah for all his faults and all the stuff that have gone down really brought the practice to a whole level of people who probably never, probably half of you wouldn't have never gotten into this, right? Right, so there's a way to talk about both and, right? You know, that's a really good example of kind of both and. Um, You know, how has that been beneficial? How has it been difficult? Or how has it been challenging? Um, And I think that's mostly what it is. It's it's, uh, trying to... uh, So there's this kind of interesting thing around the refuges is like, there's the dharma of knowing when we have to be autonomous and when we have to become our own authority and when we need to stand on our own feet. We need to know when that's true. But there's also times when we need to lean into others and we need to be in community and we need to be supported. Uh, and we, we need to learn how to do both and we need to know when one is appropriate over the other. And sometimes we can get our wires crossed on that one. So there's always this balance between what is the balance between autonomy and what is the balance between community? Because you can, you can emphasize one over the other in ways that can be problematic. And I think it's probably safe to say there's really, in America, there's not really much of a Dharma culture or really much of a community. Most, even, you know, even in Los Angeles, right, huge city, there's not really, you know, a lot of people don't have places to go. So it's not really, I think in many ways, it's just not even happened yet. You know, so I, I felt totally supported at times by community and by teachers and by uh, the insight world. I think it's probably the, the insight establishment, that world that we see insight centers of, that's probably uh, something that has arisen and, and is what I, I lean on to some degree. And I feel totally grateful that, you know, I get invited to New York Insight to teach for them and I get invited to Albuquerque and to Durango and to Bozeman. And I, I do get invited uh, to teach at a lot of these places. So I, I do feel a lot of fidelity and a lot of respect to the, to the insight world as it, as it stands, because I really feel like you know, it's probably my tradition. And so community has you know, been super important, super challenging, super traumatizing. Um, and that's why I'm reluctant to call what I'm... I'm not trying to... I don't think that anybody has done it well yet. So I'm reluctant to... I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't feel like there's ever been a model that I want to replicate. Like there's nothing that I've seen before I'm like where, I, where, I, where I see it and I see that it's worked. Mostly I see it and I go, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so mostly what I do is I just teach and practice and work with people. I mean, to be honest with you, the main reason that I trust what I do is because of the people sitting in, in this room. Like, I trust what I do so much because of the quality of the people who show up in the space. That's my measuring. You guys are my measuring stick. And I can just relax and be like, obviously I'm doing something right because these are the kinds of people who are showing up. Like, to me, that's, that's all the proof that I need, so that just makes me relax. And whatever happens or whatever, whatever comes of it, I don't really have too much worry about that. I try not to think about it. I try not to uh, plan it out. 
Um, and I feel like that's a very Dharma way to do it, to just kind of show up and see what arises, what emerges. In your experience of Dharma as a culture being around for so long, how has how that been for you? Well, you know, I was raised um, Roman Catholic in, um, in the east side of Los Angeles, which is a, especially at that time, in the 80s and late 70s, was maybe like 96, 99% Mexican neighborhood. Uh, Chicano neighborhood, and um, right next to the East LA area is this suburban um, eastern suburbs, uh, San Gabriel Valley, and especially by the 80s, the San Gabriel Valley um, is really an, an Asian enclave, and um, Taiwanese, Chinese, mainland Chinese, and in recent, more recent years, Korean, Vietnamese, so there wasn't a time in my life that I didn't know um, about Buddhism. It was almost kind of around me. Uh, my mother, who grew up in, where we grew, in Boyle Heights, I lived in the house that she grew up in, too. Um, there was more of a Japanese-American presence in Boyle Heights when, when she was being raised in the 50s and 60s. And a lot of um, people that were in her neighborhood were Buddhists, Japanese-American Buddhists. And, in San Gabriel Valley, there was plenty of, of Dharma centers, temples, and it's LA is still like that. There's lots of Dharma centers, but they're not necessarily giving instruction in English. It's in, you know, uh, I, though I do know one Sri Lankan temple, they, um, they give instructions on English in the weekends. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's in their home uh, language. That's, that's true of all over Los Angeles. And uh, there's just not a lot of places for English instruction. That is hard. So um, it was always kind of there in the background. My mom's best friend was Buddhist, um, which I thought was weird at the time because she was like Catholic too. <laughs> and I didn't understand what that was about. <laughs> I get it now, how you do it, but at then I was like, that's crazy. I was a child, I was like, that's nuts. And, um, and so, and I took a, a class on Eastern philosophy in college, and we went to a, a field trip to what is a very large um, temple in San Gabriel Valley. It's like the largest in the Western Hemisphere, Shilai Temple. That's uh, Pure Land um, Chinese Buddhism. So it was really the first Dharma center I'd ever been to was there. That was my first experience. Huge, humongous um, cultural center of the neighborhood, like a a real place for, I mean, I've talked to people who are from Roland Heights where it is, and they've been like, oh yeah, I used to go there from field trips, from school, like it's a, a big neighborhood place. But um, I think how I kind of stumbled upon Buddhism as far as it being for me was uh, Noah's book. Is I, it was mid, my mid-20s, I was really depressed and sad and just like, ugh, I just don't even know about life. And I walked into South Pasadena Public Library and I saw his book on the new bookshelf and it said Dharma Punks. And I was like, what does that one have to do with the other? And I, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong, I'm crazy about music. I love music and love punk. And I was like, what is this? And so I read it and it kind of, it took me a while to realize it totally changed my life. Because at first I was like, wow, 
this is really something. And then I was really interested and got deeper and deeper into researching who this was and found Spirit Rock and Jack Cornfield, and that's how it all started. So, you know, the first time I walked into these Dharma centers like Spirit Rock or Inside LA at that time when it first started, um, I felt um, a sense of being, a feeling intimidated because these were rooms full of white people and I wasn't raised in white neighborhoods at all. The older I got, the more white people I was around because of college and graduate school and all that, but that was not how I was brought up. And so I was like, I feel really different and weird. And honestly, the presence of the Buddha was very comforting because I knew that the Buddha in present day U.S. would be considered a person of color. And that was like, that meant the world to me. I was like, well, the Buddha's here. And the representation of the Buddha as an Asian person who he was, was huge. Mm. So that gave me a lot of comfort and ease. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so you said, you said something, but just to unpack it more. What has been beneficial about being in that? What, what has been like difficult or challenging being in, being in those spaces, in and out of those spaces for really the last 10, 12 years now? Well, it was kind of interesting with uh, Dharma Punks and Gensa Stream and all of that, because I really felt a sense of belonging. It had nothing to do with anything ethnically or racially. I was still one of the very few people of color and even fewer um, uh, Latino people. But we were all kind of the same age. I, you know, I came from a lot of trauma. Everybody else came from a lot of trauma. So many people were in recovery, even though I wasn't. There was just a lot of, like I understood a lot of people there. And I also felt like economic-wise, there are a lot of people that were struggling. A lot of us didn't have a lot of money. A lot of us were really young and just trying to get by, and I was like, oh, okay. If it wasn't for Dharma punks, I don't think I would have ever got to Spirit Rock on my own or been in any of this, you know. But I think that the most challenging has been this one incident, which was very, very hard. Um, I was teaching on Santa Monica when uh, Gensa Stream had the Santa Monica Center. And, you know, I was there, and even though East Hollywood, they had another center in East Hollywood, and that was rather white, Santa Monica was even wider. And so <laughs> I was teaching, and somebody, this guy, this white guy, and that's this pertinent story why I say that, he got up and walked out. And that's always hard. That's always like when people walk out and I'm talking, it's like, oh, well, it hurts to the ego, but I was like, okay, I'll keep talking. Later on, uh, somebody told me, um, a friend of mine said, you know, he didn't tell me for many years, but when he did tell me, it was like a bomb set off in my, my heart and my mind. He said, that guy who left, because we were talking about Santa Monica for some reason, that center, he said, that guy who left, I heard him, what he said under his breath was, I didn't come here to hear the Dharma taught by someone who looks like my mother's maid. Ooh. And um, I was like, I cannot believe that happened. And he, and it, it was a whole trauma for him, too. He's a, um, you know him too, Juan? Mm -hmm. He heard that. And, oh, yeah, yeah, and Juan, sure. he said, I felt a sense of, I won't, my first impulse was, 
to grab a chair and hit him. <laughs> and I was like, he's like, of course not, I can't do that here. And I was like, I'm glad you didn't. And it was, it was just like that feeling for him of being so angry and feeling like violent impulse was a whole trauma for him. And I felt horrible and um, talking to Joanna Hardy, one of my teachers, and I would tell her, I feel like people are judging me. And she said, they are judging you. And I was like, okay. And for whatever reason, that made me feel better. Like, I actually, what I'm perceiving is real. I'm not, you know, nutty or, like, delusional. It's, it's happening. spot on. I'm spot on. I'm right. Okay. Um, so, not everybody. But I was like, okay, some people just are, and I know that. And I was like, I, what I know is true is, is true. So... That was, that's, that was the hardest thing ever in teaching so far. And to know that that could happen is very difficult. But um, I also feel like my presence, maybe that was just really challenging for that person. And never seeing somebody, uh, my gender, perhaps um, my racial and ethnic background, um, be in the front of the room. It's very rare to see somebody like me in the front of the room. So I feel just my presence sometimes is a teachable moment for people. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that's possible and just to like to, to turn their maybe implicit biases they didn't know they had kind of on, the, on, a, on its head, on their heads, you know, like I didn't expect this, wow. And I think that kind of challenge is good for people Yes, yeah, so the last question, you know, in all this, in what ways, how have you felt supported and in what ways have you felt alone? Well, I've had some teachers that were extremely supportive. Like, you are incredibly supportive, mm-hmm. always. And um, I remember our teachers at Against the Stream, like Mary Stancavage was so supportive for so many years. Joanna has Hardy had been a huge support and just um, different teachers I can think of along the way that where I met them in teacher interviews or on retreat and they'd say things that I just was like that just were so inspiring on a general level and sometimes even personal um, that made me feel like like on fire. Or, you know, the Dharma is like, yeah, this is really wonderful. And this is so, like, I need to keep going. It's like its own momentum. I have to keep going. So there's been a lot of support from teachers. And also, when I've gone into groups like this, when I've been in programs like this, the two-year program that I was in, or different study programs, uh, the Sangha, it's really nice to make to make friends, mm-hmm. Dharma friends. And then you have... Dharma brothers and sisters, and that's really wonderful. Um, the times that I have not felt supported, I think what gets hard in this kind of Western insight tradition is what I think of it as, you know, is um, it is very, as you were saying, sometimes comes in a package that's very um, super educated, uh, maybe upper middle class, um, sometimes very white, and it feels sometimes like, uh, to me, sometimes almost elitist. Mm -hmm. And that is very hard 
And because of that, I, if Dharma punks hadn't existed, I would not have ever gone to Spirit Rock or been interested in IMS. I don't think so. Because it would have been too intimidating and too upsetting in some way. I mean, I spent years with Dharma punks to where I was like, okay, I can handle this. I can handle being at Spirit Rock. Because no one would tell us, like, go wherever you can. Sit with people you don't even like. Just go, just go, just go. And I was like, and that encouragement kind of gave me some bravery about it. Like, I can do it. Um, but that's really hard. And I, and I see how what I'm describing and what you touched upon really um, is not accessible for so many people. And so that's a huge bummer. And I, and I have felt that way, where I felt the squeeze, the economic squeeze of, like, I can't afford this retreat. Or, you know, I'm, I do okay, but I'm not rich. And, I, you know, I just feel like, this is hard. Economically, this is hard. Why does it have to be this way? So, yeah. So the next set of questions is, how would we like to see the culture of Dharma evolve? And I think that evolution is a good word here. Um, I feel uh, very optimistic about all of this, actually. Um, I think that the momentum uh, of Dharma is actually quite good. And so I, I just would like to see something different and something new and something, you know, the thing that's interesting if you track the Dharma, you know, every time, and this is a historical perspective, I don't think it'll happen here, but the general perspective is that when the Dharma went to a new location, it went to China and became Chan Zen Buddhism, went to Japan, it spread around quite a bit. And it took, they say it takes about 400 years for the Dharma to infiltrate the culture so that's the point where the kind of, and we're like maybe, well, probably like 100, maybe 100, but probably more like 50 in this particular context. And I think it's going to happen a lot quicker here because it's the United States. And so uh, what happens is the Dharma affects the culture in which it shows up in, but also the culture that it shows up in also affects that. And so it kind of, uh, you know, it's an, it's an ever-changing, <laughs> impermanent process. Uh, and I, I support that. I, I want to see that uh, happen. I want to be part of that. Um, and I, I feel very, very optimistic about that. And I feel some degree of responsibility to do it with some degree of fidelity and to do it with ethics and to do it with care um, and to do it with patience. So this next question is, what are some of the needs and hopes that I have as a student and as a teacher? And so just remember, first and foremost, I am a student. You know, I'm, I, I feel much more uh, a student of this practice. Um, and so I'm hoping to continue to get on retreats and to practice in a way. Um, I've seen the bad side. I, I think what happens with teachers is they get to a point where they stop practicing, kind of. Uh, and I, I, I'm not too scared that that will happen for me, uh, but, I, I, but it's a bad look. Um, and so I always try to have people, and I have quite a few people kind of who keep an eye on me. Um, one of them being my wife, who probably does a better job than anybody. Um, and just really trying to make sure that I stay humble and that I stay a student and that I um, stay ethical and that I... Um, 
don't fall into the trappings that can happen of um, being the person who sits in front of the room. Luckily for me, uh, having had a career in music and having played in front of thousands of people and done all that stuff, I kind of think I burned all that out by now. Like, I, I'm not very impressed that this is what I do. And when regular people ask me, I'm usually embarrassed to have to say, oh, I teach both meditation, you know? So I don't covet the role at all, um, which I think is very helpful. Uh, and really, as a teacher, I just hope that there continues to be students, and I really say it, I really mean when I say it, I only get to do what I do because you do what you do. Like, if you stop doing this, I would have to stop doing this. Right? So there, there, to me, there's an interdependent relationship here where really the teacher is the Dharma, and that we just kind of work more symbiotically, more relationally, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Eileen's been doing this for a long time, and we've been we've been trained in some capacity to to really sort of facilitate. I think is really the way that I think about it. You know, um, and so I, I think it's always important to be a student first uh, and maintain the student. Um, and you know, I will I will show up until you stop showing up. I will show up in this room until I'm the only one sitting here, and then I'll have to stop probably. <laughs> So I, and, I, and I don't have a, you know, I, and I'm okay with whatever outcome there is. But really, I, I really consider the measuring stick. You know, me and Shannon talk about this all the time. I'm like, because I, I, I get in my doubts and I get in my fears and I get in this uh, period where I don't want to, you know, uh, I just get unsure about it sometimes. I'm like, this is kind of, why am I doing this? Is this really worth it? Do I have anything to say? Is, you know, all of that stuff. And, and I, she reminds me, and I always remind myself, I'm like, but look at the people who show up. Right? You know, to me, that's the, the testament of all of it, is the quality of the people who show up for the practice. Right? Obviously, something, there's some force at play here that is way beyond my, myself, or us, it's, just, it's the Dharma. Right? And I think that like-minded people tend to kind of swarm together, and, and I trust that. Um, I trust that more than really anything. I have more faith in that than I do probably anything else. And so the, the last question is, in which ways am I optimistic about the practice? In which ways am I suspicious about the practice or some of this stuff? You know, I, and I do this dance back and forth. Sometimes I get... You know, the joke is, it's like, you know, everybody with an Instagram account is a Dharma teacher now. <laughs> right? And so that sometimes um, has a stench to it that I don't like. And I, try, I don't want to get lumped in with that. So I don't like... I post on social media a little bit. I, I mostly don't do it for the most part. I just... That whole wanting to be seen in a certain way and um, people who, you know... It happens to, you know, you'll go on a retreat and somebody will be sitting in their first retreat and they'll come up to me afterwards and you go, this is so amazing, like, how do you become a Dharma teacher? I'm like, dude, you just sat your first retreat, like, for seven days, like, it's not how it works. But there's this kind of rushing or wanting to, and, and to me, that I just really don't like that look. A lot of times, sometimes I feel like I haven't had enough of practice to be doing this. And I look at, you know, I'm like, I have like a thousand times more than the people who are knocking on the door. And so that either, that can actually bum me out and kind of make me want to kind of 
be away from the whole thing. And on the other side of the coin, that actually and says, no, actually, I need to double down. I always cry when I say this, but... A couple years ago when I moved to Colorado and I was going through the, do I even want to bother with this? You know, before all the, before, this is while ATS was still actually doing well. And so, it was, so the collapse of ATS was a little bit like, I kind of liked it a little bit because I was like, I fucking told you guys. <laughs> Nobody wanted to listen to me two years ago. Uh, I took, I have to admit, I took a little bit of pleasure in all that. Um, because it was hard to, to, I removed myself from that organization and it was continuing to thrive, which I was happy that it was thriving, but I was like, you know, I chose to remove myself from, from that organization. It was very, very, very painful. And, uh, and even to the point where Noah would, would, would go out of his way to try to sabotage me being able to teach and would tell people not to hire me and that I was a bad person and that I was unethical and not to be trusted. Boy, that backfired on him, though. <laughs> and uh, so I was just like, fuck this, dude. Like, I'm not, you know, I, I, I spent all these years, I spent thousands of dollars being trained, and then, and then I was on the outside of that, and I was like, I'm not going to, how am I going to even be able to do this? And it was really Stephen Smith, who's always been, and I said, I just don't know. Like, and he said, you have to do this. He was the same person I said I was going to maybe join the monastery. He was all, I call, you, know, you call people to co-sign your shit and they give you the opposite message. He's always been that person. He's like, you have to do this. You can't come this far and then stop. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and he's like, you, know, you, you just have to do it and you have to literally do it until there's nobody in the room. And so it's been really a long, slow process. Like the fact that we've, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, the fact that this program really was, this is a successful program for the Secular Dharma Foundation. And it's been, it's been a really, really slow, slow, slow walk uphill. You know, it's been uh, psychologically challenging, emotionally challenging. It's been really financially challenging, you know. But it's like, at the end of the day, either you trust the Dharma or you don't. You know, that's kind of... That, it's, at, some, at some point, it does get a bit black and white. We're like, either, either you do or you don't. And you, you will get to the point, and probably some of you are there, where you just can't afford to not. Because there's really, as far as I'm concerned, it's, once you start to understand the transformative power of the practice, there's no alternative. So I like all of that because part of my practice is like almost like I, I've always had this weird relationship with the universe. I don't know what the universe is, but we've always had a weird relationship. <laughs> and it's kind of this kind of poker game I've been playing with the universe. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'm, all right, I'll trust the Dharma. Let, let, you know, like, I'll do it. Let's see. And I'm just like, come on, bring it on, bring it on. I know shit's going to, I know the other shoe's going to drop, and it just doesn't drop. It hasn't dropped yet. And so, like, I like faith as a kind of risk. To me, it feels like a very risky thing. It's scary. Right? When you look at 
the world that we live in and all of the security that can be provided by the world, by society or money or all these things. And just saying, actually, no, I'm not going to trust any of that. I'm going to trust this other thing that I don't even fucking understand. Like, I, I actually enjoy that. Because it's just, it, it feels like a big part of my practice is just like the risk of trusting and the risk of trusting. And just when, just when I think I'm about to go to the dark side or just when I think it's just something always, something always happens, something always arises. Right? And so I like to think about the Dharma practice or the way that I relate to it in that sense of like, I'm always in this kind of bizarre relationship with like, do you dare to trust this? Right? In to some degree, you don't even know what it is that you're trusting or where the faith is. And that's where, as I talked about the other night, faith is really this, it's not this, it's this very elusive kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's very ambiguous and it's very dynamic and it's moving around all the time. And the things that you trust, they change a lot. And that whole existential feeling, uh, I've grown to actually quite like that. How would you like to see this unfold? Like, what, what, how would you like to see the practice evolve and uh, the Dharma go into these other places? How, uh, how would you like to see that happen and how would you like to be a part of that? Well, I'm speaking you know, from the point of view of um, what I know in my practice in the United States, part of this inside tradition. So I'm, uh, that's the... That's, the, the base of where I'm coming from right now. Um, I think I would like to see two words come up to my, come up for me, community and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see um, more community, maybe community in a different way than it's been tried and a lot of our Dharma centers and, you know, or groups that are kind of, are connected to this tradition, just kind of maybe to think of it in a different way, um, where people of all ages, of um, families, people who don't have a lot of money and just really as, as accessible and as welcoming as wide as possible. I don't want to kick anyone out. I want to, but I want it really to be a both-and community. As many people, as um, as, not only just welcome, but it's already your community. It's already yours. You just gotta let's just let's all join together. Let's do this together. You know, I want that kind of attitude, um, that kind of imbued in more of our our meeting places or centers or whatever. Um, I want to see a lot more of that. Um, that's where I'd like to see it go. I, more opportunities for people who want to just sit or people who want to study or who are really interested maybe in sutta study or want to do poly, you know, learn poly, that, that would that be offered as well? Um, I would love to see that. 
I would love. Uh, maybe um, also maybe collaborations with other Dharma centers and also maybe an opening of kind of, um, I'm thinking of LA where I am uh, specifically, and maybe this could be true in other big cities of like maybe opening up like cross-cultural kind of exchanges with um, the Dharma centers that are, you know, Asian immigrant based, you know, that this is not, this tradition is um, hundreds and hundreds of years old and our people are doing, doing this long before, you know, uh, the United States came on the scene. And so I, I just, I think that would be wonderful because I think, um, and this ties into maybe more of a, not so much a scary conversation, but to come at this um, understanding of cultural appropriation as something to investigate as a question rather than you're doing this and you're bad, but like, what is this? Is this true? Is this, is, where is the place for recognizing being here and now? The United States has a culture of its own too. We have our own space, our own ways of understanding. Uh, the Dharma has traveled throughout different cultures throughout time. And so much of the Dharma that is practiced on the planet is Asian-based. How is there a way to be ourselves and recognize what um, has come before and also what is happening now for other people from different cultures? So I don't know the answers to that. I, it's just this kind of like mm. something that I would love it to be a community conversation and people to explore that. Like how can we honor um, lineages and still be very much present day who we are in the culture that we have, many of us, if we're English speaking, you know, you know, I, I'm a native English speaker. I know very little Spanish. I'm third generation Mexican American, so it includes me too. I, sometimes I think the reason why I met Dharma punks not only just because of the book and all that, but because it was in English. There was plenty of Dharma opportunities that I could have gone. I knew of Dharma centers all over the city, but the, the instruction was not in English. And I've heard that from people, like, and at, at ATS, people would be like, yeah, there was this place down the street, but they didn't have English instruction. It was only in Vietnamese. So I was like, I don't know, I'll get so come here. Mm-hmm. And not to say that's wrong or right. It's just like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So those are some of the things I'd like to mm-hmm. see. What are some of your needs and hopes as a student and as a teacher? I'm... I, I feel very new, even as a student, I'm, I feel new. And I, I feel very new as a teacher. Um, I told my sister that, and she was like, you've been doing this for over 10 years, what are you talking about? It's like, I know, that's true, huh? <laughs> but um, I guess what I need is just um, opportunities to learn. And, and I'm just so lucky that I've been able to find them. Continual opportunities to study, to learn, to to uh, to talk to other teachers, to um, to to have access to groups, even online, has been just a a real blessing. Um, I prefer in person too, but I've been shocked at how how online has really been helpful for me in terms of having groups online or 
having discussions online, it's, it's really been helpful, especially in keeping, touch, keeping in touch with Dharma centers that I don't live close to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of like the teacher-student needs are like the same. Last question, it's, um, in what ways are you excited and optimistic about the Dharma moving forward, and uh, what ways are you maybe suspicious or concerned? I think one of the things that has concerned me and has been so bizarre and wild is I follow this, um, I follow a few <coughs> academic um, Buddhist scholars, like they study Buddhism, they're not Dharma teachers. And I've been reading some things that some of the areas of, of Buddhist culture in the US, um, not Asian immigrant, but more um, coming from white spaces of like this kind of alt-right kind of things creeping into Dharma spaces or, and I just, I'm like, this is, very scary, and so if there's any concern, that's the big. I'm not. I don't think it's going to be this huge thing, but just to know that that even exists is a little is wild in a bad way. <laughs> and so, um, just kind of reading some of these papers or some studies that some of these scholars have have been partaking in, I was like, that's a concern. That's nuts. Um, conversely, I, I well, in addition, rather, sometimes I think. And I've seen this in real time in sankhas I've been involved in, these discussions of having to do with social justice or having to do with cultural appropriation or how can we have sanghas that are more, that are inclusive. Um, These discussions can be very, very difficult. And I know I've been exhausted by them and I'm very like, like, yeah, let's, let's be inclusive as much as possible. Let's do it, let's do it. And it's just kind of like, this can be very hard. And it's not because, oh, people just don't get it. I don't mean that. It's like, it can be emotionally challenging. I mean, it, it triggers people in ways that are unexpected. Sometimes emotionally, it's like it brings people to kind of a vulnerable place that sometimes for me is kind of unknowable. Like, I didn't even know that was going to bring that up. And it can just get really explosive. So that's, that doesn't mean I don't think the hard work should be done, but I'm very cognizant that these, these are sensitive areas. So that's a concern, but not like terrible. You know. As far as my, if I'm optimistic, um, yes, I am. I, I have the good fortune of being asked to lead, um, to be part of a teaching cohort at NCLA for a young adult group. So people in their 20s come to the group, and they're just so amazing. They just want to learn. They're really excited. They're really happy to be there. And I'm just like, there's so many different ways of creating community that, may, that people have maybe not even have heard of, but that these young people may be able to bring to fruition that I can't even think about in my 45-year-old brain. You know? <laughs> So I am optimistic for the future. That's not the only reason, but seeing people that are coming in new and being really interested is, is very hopeful. So I'm interested in what people can generate together and create for the future.